0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Uh, today, I'm glad to have Dr. Arthur Bradley with us to talk about uh, his latest book, Unbearable Life, A Genealogy of Political Erasure, published by Columbia University Press. Dr. Um, Arthur Bradley is a professor of comparative literature in the Department of English and Creative Writing at Lancaster University, he has held visiting positions at the university, university of Durham and American University of Beirut Lebanon and he is the author of several books uh, such as Negative Theology and Modern French Philosophy uh, another great book Derrida's Of Grammatology and Indiana uh, Indiana Philosophy Guide uh, a new uh, another book published in 2010 the New Atheist Novel Fiction Philosophy and Polemic After 9/11 and another book called Originary Technicity The Theory of Technology from Marx to Derrida, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2011. But today he's going to talk to us about his latest monograph, uh, Unbearable Life, a Genealogy of Political Erasure. Arthur, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you very much, Mortez. It's great to be here. Uh, when I was uh, going over your university profile, some of the titles, I must be honest, some of the titles sort of freaked me out. Uh, (laughs) and uh this book uh, i don't i'm not i studied literature myself so i'm not too much into political theology so parts of this book were challenging to me but i absolutely enjoyed the good thing about the book i guess was that uh i could read uh, separate chapters sort of independently and um there was a lot for me to learn um and what I also enjoyed was how how relevant it treats it's the genealogy of political erasure. We'll talk about the book, but uh, to me it was fascinating how relevant it is to uh, to the to contemporary situation, what's happening in Ukraine nowadays or uh, even you know, a little bit earlier, what was happening with, with, with different terrorist attacks in different parts of the world. But that's what we'll talk about in a minute. But before we start, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you decided to become a professor of comparative literature? And more importantly, this book is about political theology. What drew you to political theory?
1: Okay, thank you very much. Well, yeah, as I as you said, I'm professor of comparative literature at um, Lancaster University uh, in the UK. To be honest, I'm not sure I ever really decided to pursue a career in uh, in in literature. It was uh, one of those things that that seemed to happen to me, um, you know, almost almost by accident. Um, as for what what got me hooked on on literature and and literary studies, I guess, as with with most uh, academics, it's some particular reading encounter that, uh, that really grips us. And for me, I guess it was reading someone like Kafka, uh, as a, as a young person, uh, Kafka really astonished me and, and, and perplexed me. And that was my initiation into the world of, uh, adult literature, I guess, uh, as a teenager, and I've spent the rest of my life trying and mostly failing to understand, uh, Kafka and uh, to to pursue some of the the, um, questions that that his work raises. Uh, In general, I'm interested in what, for better or worse, we call interdisciplinary work. And I think I work at the intersection of philosophy, political theory, religious studies, and and literature. And again, maybe someone like Kafka initiated me into that too, because obviously, as anyone who's read uh, any of his work will know, is that he is a, a thinker, he is a philosopher, as well as a, a novelist and a short story writer. Um, I, in, in terms of this book, just to explain a little bit about the background of it and, and where it comes from, um, I don't mention this in the book itself, but I, I grew up in Belfast in Northern Ireland during the period of the so-called Troubles uh, in the 1970s and 80s. And Political disappearance was sadly, to say, sad to say, a uh, you know n- not a uncommon phenomenon uh, in Northern Ireland. People being forcibly uh, removed, arrested, detained, and killed uh, without anyone acknowledging what had happened to them. And there are several notorious cases in Northern Ireland which still basically remain unresolved today. Um, Fortunately, I didn't have any personal experience of political disappearance as a, as a child. Uh, but I think I intuited, even, even as a very young child growing up uh, in Northern Ireland, that um, politics was something that was both inescapable in the sense that everything about my identity, uh, my name, where I lived, where I went to school, was always already political, but equally, politics was something unspeakable. Politics was something that uh, could not and should not be spoken about and could not and should not safely be spoken about. So in some ways, I think this, this book is coming out of some of my own you know, very early uh, political experiences, experiences that as a child I didn't realize were political, uh, I suppose. So, in a in more conceptual terms or or in more intellectual terms, I didn't set out to to write a conventional history of political disappearance or enforced disappearance. Uh, I'm not a political scientist, I'm, I'm not a historian, and there are lots of people who are much better qualified to do that kind of work for me. I was more interested in its cultural and conceptual history. I was more interested in where the idea of political disappearance comes from um you know that that remarkable gesture as hopefully we'll talk about of where someone says such and such a thing such and such a person simply could not exist and or never existed or will never exist and so what i try and do is trace some of the implications of this of this claim of this gesture in literature in philosophy uh and in political theory across uh uh really political modernity, mostly from uh, the 17th century up to the present day.
0: Thanks. Uh, you, you mentioned an interesting point because when I picked up the book before reading it, I thought it was a history of uh, political erasure, but I quickly, you know, just looking at the table of content tells us it's not, which actually makes it more interesting because you pick up several different authors. Uh, so maybe before we talk about some details, you can tell us some of the authors or writers you have picked up. You talk about you have Shakespeare, you have St. Augustine, you have Walter Benjamin. Can you tell us a little about the structure of the book? Um, and then we'll kind of delve deeper into the content.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, the book is really a collection of essays, I think, Um uh, all of which could be read pretty much independently of one another and and and, and could be read almost uh, in in any order. But nonetheless, they are, uh, I guess, for better or worse, paradigms, the, the the you know, the figures i've I've chosen for of of certain moments, of certain pivotal moments in the history of political theory political philosophy and this thing that 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 i call political theology and we can talk a little bit more about that in a moment if you like um firstly i talk about uh, augustine's city of god and in particular book 19 of city of god which is uh, as as some of your readers will will know is is the book where augustine really sets out his own what you know what what today we would call his own political theory, his own political philosophy of what, how exactly the state, the state should operate, operate the city of man, the city of God. And then I leap forward to early modernity, the transition from uh, royal sovereignty and popular sovereignty by looking at figures like Shakespeare, uh, by looking at figures like uh, Thomas Hobbes, uh, I move forward again to look at the French Revolution, you know, the birth of uh, political modernity, uh, by looking at the speeches and, and writings of um, uh, Maximilien Robespierre. Uh, and then I finish off by moving into the 20th century with two chapters on the political theorists, political theologians, Carl uh, Schmitt and uh, Walter Benjamin.
0: And the... Uh, uh, d- the, the book is there are a lot of examples from literature and what fascinated me was that uh, you're a professor of comparative literature this is a book this is an inter- interdisciplinary book but again the 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 palace between literature and politics uh so can you talk about that a little bit do, do you consider literature to be to be to be similar to politics in a way
1: yeah i mean it's a it's a big and a, and, and it's a complicated question but I mean, let's just say at a, at a very simple or, or or minimal level that there is a, a kind of middle ground between uh, political theory and uh, literature, you know, on the one side, as I've already mentioned, uh, writers like Shakespeare, writers like Kafka and so on, are clearly, in some sense, political writers who describe a uh, and criticize a, a political universe, who intervene into politics, and genuinely, in the case of of Shakespeare, influence the the political imaginary of the early seventeenth century. And on the other hand, you know the great works of political theory, you know people like Thomas Hobbes, Machiavelli, and and, and so on. Um, are also literary works, you know, not simply in the sense that they are, you know, very carefully crafted uh, 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 texts with very specific structures and voices and personae. Mm-hmm. But also just in the sense that many of the arguments that that they advance and many of the claims they make depend on what you know what I would call fictions, fictions of of the political. You know, if we think of Thomas Hobbes' idea, famous idea of the state of nature, for example. You know, what exactly is the state of nature? I mean, Hobbes is very clear; it's it's not a real place. You know, it's not it's not he's not making a historical claim about what society was really like uh, before. Uh, uh we all decided to to live together in in a commonwealth or, or a community it's a kind of a thought experiment it's a, a it's a heuristic fiction uh in which Hobbes is really saying let's let's imagine you know if we subtracted everything that makes a society if we took it all away what what would what would be would we be left with you know that's and and you know we can we can find numerous such uh, heuristic fictions, thought experiments in the history of of political theory, from the state of nature in Hobbes or or or, or Locke or Rousseau, up to you know people like Rawls's uh, veil of uh, of ignorance. So um, I, I, you know, to, that's a long way of 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 just making the very simple point that that I began with is that I don't think there's any clear dividing line between political theory and and literature. Um, political theory involves fictions, fictions of the political, and literary fictions uh, have an irreducibly political dimension as well.
0: Um, that reminds me of when I, when I had my viva session for my PhD thesis. I, I ventured a lot into philosophy and and uh, and also environmental activism, and I guess one of the criticism from one of the examiners was that literature must be kept separate. There is this, like, as if there is this halo around literature. We cannot really be engaged with real world. Into, it needs to be kind of put on a pedestal and, you know, extolled for its aesthetic values. But I always feel like literature is a great venue, you know, to venture into politics, into environmentalism, into in, into anything that, you know, deals with the human society.
1: Sure, um, sure. Yeah, I'm very sympathetic to that. I mean, I think there are bad ways to read literature politically. Yeah, that's you know,
0: right.
1: Obviously, there are clumsy and, and reductive ways ways of mm. doing it. But, but like you, I wouldn't want to to bracket it off from from the real world of politics. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, let's start with some definitions. Political erasure. Mm. Uh, when 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 people hear the word political erasure, they, what might what they might think of is is an act of killing. So. Politicians or or the police might kill somebody just to erase them, but you but conceptually it's completely different from that. So maybe you can tell us the, the definition of political erasure. Tell us how it's different from killing, and you make the point that it's even worse than killing in some ways. And um, I guess it's also a good place to give us a uh, 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 to tell us a little about the history of that. Where it started, I, I don't know if it was the first place where it started or not, but there is this Greek term. If I'm not, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, damnatio memoriae, um, erasure of memory, or damnation, damnation of memory. Yeah. So, can you talk about the um, definition of political erasure?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, unfortunately, political erasure is, as, you, as I think you said at the beginning, is is one of those incredibly timely topics, and we could talk about it in the case of the war in Ukraine. Um, You know, we could go back to Northern Ireland that I mentioned, to South America in the 1970s as well. Um, But I trace it all the way back to uh, uh, ancient Rome and to this uh, gesture of of what's called uh, damnatio memori. And the book opens with a discussion of this punishment. It was a particular punishment called damnatio memori. Um, if a citizen in Rome was um, accused of a particularly heinous crime, usually some form of treason against the emperor, one of the punishments that would be inflicted upon them would not simply be, be, be death or injury, but something called the damnation of memory. And in the case of the damnation of memory, what, what would happen is that this person is uh, um, any for any public uh, um, representations of this person, for example, any statues to them, uh, any uh, images of them upon coins would be defaced. You know, their their face would be scratched out, their their or 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 uh, would be removed from the statue. Uh, any record of them in public documents would be. Uh, put under erasure, would be uh, uh, destroyed in, in one way or another. Um, any of their properties or possessions and so on would be expropri- expropriated and, and, and distributed. In effect, this person would be treated not as someone who had lived and now had been, ki- you know, been killed or punished for a crime, but as someone who had simply never existed at all. And for me, this is the difference between political erasure and political killing. I mean, often, of course, yes, political erasure is is a kind of diplomatic or polite way of talking about killing but the true horror i think of political erasure and what makes it you know potentially even more uh, scandalous or exorbitant than the act of of punishment or killing is that it retracts even the very bare um dignity the meager uh dignity or recognition that killing uh uh, uh accords us to kill somebody you have to first acknowledge that they exist you have to simply say you exist and i am going to kill you but when you erase somebody you also you do not simply erase their life you also erase the necessity of killing them Uh, you effectively put them in a position where they've never uh, uh, existed they've never been born so political erasure is not just killing in the present, it's erasure in the past. This person never existed. Uh, and as I've said, we can trace it all the way up to the present. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky, as we know, President of Ukraine, said over the summer that Russia doesn't simply want to destroy us, he wants to completely erase our identity. And for Zelensky, rightly so, I think, this was seen as something even more horrific, even more inhumane than the act of killing it because it retracts, as I've said, that, that bare or minimal uh, moment of recognition that even the act of murder, even the act of killing uh, accords to the victim. I hope that that
0: answers uh, your question a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's uh it's an interesting thing because as you mentioned, when you decide to kill somebody, you, you recognize that they exist, that they exist, but yeah. with the act of political erasure, uh you, you as I guess the Greek term it is it's damnation of memory. The whole memory has to be completely wiped out. And and you mentioned uh it, it was in ancient Rome, but there are still examples, contemporary examples of that going on. We had uh, we had the, 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 the phenomenon of disappearance in Latin America. You mentioned Northern Ireland. You mentioned Ireland that I didn't know about, that uh, disappearance was was uh, was was a fact that was happening there. And in the conclusion of your book, you talk about CIA's black sites where those um, terrorist suspects were kept and their existence were even denied. So can you tell us a little more about the maybe contemporary examples of political erasure, how it's practiced, or just some examples?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, the reason I begin with damnatio memoriae and this uh, 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 phenomenon of, you know, the ancient Roman damnation of memory uh, is not simply to tell a a history story. You know, in effect, damnatio memoriae died out, you know, I think roughly by about the fourth century. We don't don't have any more um, accounts of it. But obviously, it persists under new names uh, and under different names. This gesture of simply of saying you never existed, they never existed, we do not have to kill them because we do not recognise that they ever lived in the first place, you know, re-emerges and kind of metastasizes, particularly as we enter political modernity. You know, when you get uh, to the French Terror, for example. Of the 1790s and the concept of the enemy of the people, something that will also recur uh, in, um, uh, in Stalinist Russia, for example. I mean, the enemy of the people again is not a, is not simply a human being uh, who um, can be killed, but someone who is so radically out with the body politic that their existence is is almost a contradiction. It's inimical to the life of, of that body. And, you know, uh, in, in the chapter on, Ro- on Robespierre, um, I talk about a very famous text by, um, the abbé called What is the Third Estate? Like one of the, the great revolution, French revolutionary, um, uh, texts where, uh, he, he basically, describes the the political enemy as not something that needs to be killed but something that needs to be almost surgically removed like a like a a tumor uh from the body in order for the body to live and this is very much how um the french revolutionaries and particularly the the french terrorists like robespierre understood uh the figure of uh, uh louis XVI. you know louis was a kind of strange uh um excrescence or cancer upon the body politic, uh, which needed to be removed in order so that the people themselves might live. And if you, you know, if you tell this story, if we pursue it a little bit further, you know, obviously, uh, under uh, Stalin, uh, in the Soviet Union, we get what um, Leon Trotsky, very famously called the Stalin school of falsification, he writes a book uh, under that very title where stalin uh bureaucratically and politically on and on almost a kind of industrial scale uh rewrites history removing his political enemies from history airbrushing them out of photographs removing their names from the minutes of meetings you know so that it's not simply that uh, uh um you know, they existed and then they were killed or banished or something is that they simply never existed in the first place. And this is, you know, a punishment that was, that Trotsky himself uh, uh, suffered. And as you mentioned, you know, we move on to Latin America uh, in the 1960s and 70s, where this phenomenon of disappearance, political disappearance, uh, you know, we see it in in numerous states, Chile, for example, um, would be the the most prominent example, uh, the Middle East, places like Lebanon in the Lebanese Civil War uh, in the 1980s. But uh, the book concludes with this notion of this the CIA black sites, these kind of offshore um, holding centers or detention centers uh, owned and run by the American government, but outside the territory of the United States of America itself, in which detainees occupy a kind of physical and but also a, a, a legal black site, you know, where they very often are detained for long periods of time with without adequate legal representation, without, you know, the uh, recourse to habeas corpus and, and, and those kinds of uh, phenomena. So, in a sense, political disappearance, the argument of the book is that political disappearance has never disappeared. Uh, if anything, it becomes increasingly normalized. As a, as, as a part of uh, our modern political uh, and s- military and security apparatus.
0: Uh, let us go to chapter one. Uh, mm-hmm. That's where you talk about Foucault's idea of biopolitics, and then you introduce the term uh, Nihil politics. if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Correct, correctly. But before yeah. that, tell us the definition of unbearable life. Where does it come yeah. from? What is unbearable life? And there are other terms, like, for example, Judith Butler's precarious life, or we have Agamemn's bare life. So, how does unbearable life differ from these terms?
1: Thanks. Yeah. Um, so, unbearable life is my uh, is my term, mm-hmm. uh, for better or worse. But it's obviously uh, referring to and and paying. Uh, a kind of tribute to a whole host of works over the last twenty or thirty years, which uh, have sought to, you know, redescribe uh, life and uh, the condition of the living uh, in new political terms, and to describe what the fate of life has been in uh, political modernity. I'm thinking here of the work of people like. Um, Giorgio Agamben, political Italian political philosopher Giorgio Agamben, which he borrows the term bear life uh, from Walter Benjamin, Nuda Vita, as he calls it. Judith Butler has this term precarious life, uh, Eric Santner, creaturely life, uh, and so on. And these are all fantastic works, which you know I admire and 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 uh you know my own work would not be possible without them. However, I think there's a subtle difference between this thing I call unbearable life, uh, uh and these other terms like bare life and uh, precarious life. I, I I mean unbearable in both a literal and a metaphorical sense, in the metaphorical sense of intolerable, a form of life which which is simply inimical, is utterly hostile to, to a, a certain political order. And because of that uh, uh, intolerability, it's a life that must be Uh, rendered unborn, a life that's rendered as never having lived in the first place. So for me, the key difference between what I call unbearable life and some of these earlier concepts is that unbearable life, at least apparently, removes the concept of violence or killing uh, from its structure. Because what really defines the work of people like Agamben and Butler uh, you know what their 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 master thesis or main thesis about life in political modernity is that life today is absolutely is defined as absolutely exposed to death and and killing without reserve okay it's a it's it's a life that is absolutely open to injury and death at the hands of the state that's what renders it vulnerable that what's what's uh what renders it precarious but unbearable life is life that's not Uh, defined in terms of its exposure to death and killing, but life that is never recognized as having lived in the first place, and so does not need to be killed. In a sense, unbearable life abolishes both life and death. That's the difference.
0: And uh, the authority that decides if this life is, is worth living or not, that's the sovereign or sovereignty. I do like to. I do like to have, um, for the benefit of the audience, to to know what you mean by sovereignty. There is this beautiful quote in your book uh, mm-hmm. that is on page four. Um, so sovereignty is neither the power to make die and let live, nor the power to make live and let die, as Foucault's biopolitical poli- reversal of the Roman dictum puts it, but rather to make to, but rather the power to make life. Neither live nor die. So, can you give us a definition of sovereignty? Um, and then we also talk about, and then you could also talk about nihil politics. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, in some ways, I think that quote that you just read out is a really good summary of the the book as a whole. You know, that's that's the main. Uh, Conceptual claim, or or, uh, that 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 I'm making, and in that I think it's important to put it in context because I'm really uh, engaging here with Michel Foucault and with uh, a series of lectures that Michel Foucault was giving at the Collège de France in uh, uh, the the mid to late 1970s, where he begins for the first time to formulate this this thing called. Biopolitics, biopolitique, biopouvoir, whatever whatever um, uh, you want to call it, and Foucault draws a really important stink- distinction in these lectures, a distinction that you know we need to we need to talk more about. I think I'm not, I'm not sure how secure it is between between sovereignty and biopolitics. Um, sovereignty, for Foucault, is defined as the you know the classical the right classically defined as uh, the right of, of seizure or the negation of life. You know the sovereign is the one who takes hold of life and and squeezes it to death. And if you want, you know, a very simple example of this, you might say that um, uh, the, the death penalty, okay, would be a a, a a very simple example of where supreme power in a society such as under in the you know the uh, the Roman Empire, for example, would lie in the right the power, as Foucault puts it, to make, die, and let live. Sovereign is the person who has the power to make somebody die, okay, without without committing uh, uh, murder. However, Foucault argues that in political modernity, and he's really talking roughly around the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, this definition of supreme power as the power to make die is subtly reversed as we enter uh, the era of what he calls biopolitics. He says modern power is no longer interested in seizing life in order to threaten and kill it and coerce it. Rather, biopolitical power is the power to make life live. What does he mean by that? Well, it's the power to maximize life, the power to make it grow, the power to make life more productive. Okay, and Foucault gives many examples uh, of, of this. Uh, throughout his work, you know, we could see things like um, population studies, where where uh, our governments become interested in this thing called the population, uh, which can be measured in uh, statistical terms for the first time. We also see the beginning of the the welfare apparatuses of the nineteenth and twentieth centuries you know, the, the beginnings of uh, the welfare state, the hospital systems, and so on. This is when political power becomes really invested in making life live, making life stronger, healthier, and so on. So that's really the context of that quote, okay? Foucault uh, reverses the, the ancient Roman formula that sovereignty is the power to make, die, and let live by saying that today, sovereignty is the power to, to make, live, and let die, However, my addition or my, my own reformulation of this uh, particular axis of, of life and death comes in what I call unbearable life or in this thing called nihilopolitics. politics politics being the, the possibility of annihilating or uh, uh, removing um, uh, existence. My definition of sovereignty uh, in the book is that it is the power to make life neither live nor die. That's quite a paradoxical claim, the power to make life neither live nor die. But what I'm really doing here is actually just pursuing uh, an insight that Foucault um, throws out almost spontaneously in his lectures, but but never really follows up, which is that, you know, life itself is not something which exists entirely independently of sovereign power, and of political power, the right to life is not a, a kind of biological or neutral principle. It's something which is uh, bestowed upon us uh, by political power. So the sovereign, the the, the, the supreme political power uh, is the power to decide whether I live, to recognize, recognize me as a living being endowed with certain rights, and also the power to take away those rights the power uh, to kill me unless and until political power the sovereign makes that kind of decision i exist in a kind of uh, grey zone you know a kind of area where i neither live nor die a sort of state of exception where i'm neither alive nor dead until uh, the sovereign says so in 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 one way or another so that's really the that's the conceptual structure of of the book that sovereignty is not the power to make die not the power to make live but rather the power to make life neither
0: live nor die and uh, you discuss another theorist's work here uh, in in chapter 1 uh esposito if i'm pronouncing the name correctly and his work on Nazi eugenics that 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 kind of Put everything into perspective for me in terms of uh, sovereignty um, and he has this concept the anticipat- anticipatory suppression of birth uh, how, how does it relate to to the modern idea of sovereignty
1: thanks very much yeah i mean i'm i'm a big admirer of uh, roberto esposito's work and again i think he's someone who very much lies in the in the, in, in the background of this of this book and without without um uh, without him and his work the book itself would, would not have been possible. And I think this concept of the anticipatory suppression of birth and, and of Nazi eugenics more generally maybe brings home or brings down to earth uh, you know, the slightly more abstract uh, claims that I'm making about uh, sovereignty uh, so far. Uh, in his book Bios, uh, Esposito does a, a you know, fabulous and kind of horrifying analysis of, of Nazi eugenics. In uh, the 1930s, Um, as you know, as we all know, uh, you know, the Nazi program uh, concluded in the Holocaust, but really the beginning of that program was and this this was really from the very beginning of of uh, Hitler's uh, uh, assumption of power in 1933 was a eugenics program, which was designed to make life live in the Foucauldian sense of that term, to ensure, uh, you know, a a racially uh, 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 pure and allegedly healthy uh, uh, population, okay? And one of the the planks of Nazi eugenics was a program of forced or compulsory sterilization, okay? And this was a law that was introduced very early on, uh, um, under the Nazi regime and it was originally targeted at people uh, with various congenital um, uh, uh, birth uh, issues or, or, or one kind of, an o- of another and so that these people were not able to, to, to have children. They were they were forcibly um, sterilized. Allegedly, um, this program was going to be extended and, and to be become almost normalized. Um, where people over a certain age, women over a certain age would be sterilized to minimize or to, to eliminate any risk that they could have a, a child with, with any kind of congenital issues or, or or birth defects. And in his book, Esposito calls this the anticipatory suppression of birth. And this is quite an interesting idea for me and a good example of one of the things that, that uh, I call this thing I call nihilopolitics um, uh, in the book. Because, you know, what's actually happening here? Is this an act of killing? You know, when you sterilize someone, you're not killing anyone. It's not It's not a form of abortion. You know, it's not like you're removing a fetus that is already, uh, you know, in embryo or some form uh, in the body. But what you're doing is a kind of virtual, you could almost a kind of virtual killing. You're removing the very possibility of, Future people, the very possibility of birth ever happening—it's a kind of preemptive act of, of 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 killing, an act of nullification that mean that makes or renders the act of physical killing unnecessary. You know, we don't need to perform an abortion. We don't need to perform murder because those people will simply never exist in the first place. And this, for me, would be another example, you know, a very concrete and horrifying example of this sovereign power to make life neither live nor die. It's extending sovereignty uh, from the biological sphere into the virtual sphere of anticipating possible futures, future births, Future peoples, and in a in a kind of preemptive way, denying the possibility
0: or removing the possibility of those futures ever happening. Um, I guess that that was a great example to, to uh, as I meant to sort of delineate the concept of sovereignty, and also unbearable life, and. Um, there are a lot of questions I want to ask you, but I know that I need to cover different chapters in the book. So let's sure. talk about chapter two, um, Saint Augustine's City of God. You talk about a character uh, called Cacus in that uh, chapter. So uh, who's banned in, in City? Who's banned from Augustine's City of God? Mm. So how how does that character relate to the idea of unbearable life? And uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, I think in those in the book came across the idea that St. Augustine also supports the idea of torture, which, uh, which, which I found quite, um, quite bizarre. I, that, yeah. that was the last thing that came would come to my mind when I hear the word St. Augustine. Sure. Sure. Yeah.
1: I mean, this is actually the first chapter I wrote in the book. Um, and you know, in some ways, again, it's, it, it really stands alone. If, if anyone is interested in, in, in pursuing it, I don't think it, uh, uh, you you know you it's not so, you don't need to read the rest of the book in order um to read this chapter, and uh, in book nineteen of City of God, as I mentioned earlier on, um, Augustine is really setting out his political philosophy. I mean, we, he wouldn't use that term or understand that concept, but for you know for speed's sake, let, let's call it that. And in a a passing moment in Book 19, um, he discusses a character, you know, a character, a mythological figure who appears in Virgil's Aeneids, for example, called Cacus. And Cacus was this um, kind of savage, self-interested, lawless figure uh, who lived in a cave or by himself, who had no family or friends or or anyone, and uh, who was eventually killed by Hercules after he tried to steal some uh, uh, cattle belonging to Hercules, and almost in passing, Augustine says, "Well, such a character could never have existed. You know, he's simply a mythological figure. Carcus could never have existed," and. This is one of the earliest examples of this thing I called unbearable life. You know, this recurring gesture, which, which in each chapter I find in different figures in different places of, of an author simply saying such and such a person could not have existed. And what I try and do in the chapter is just explore in a little bit more detail, the ramifications of Augustine's decision to, to render caucus unbearable life. You know, what, why does he do that? And what are the consequences uh, for it? Well, Firstly, I think carcass is is kind of, you know, literally unbearable, intolerable within Augustine's political universe. Um, I don't want to get into the theological implications of this uh, uh, in in any detail, but simply put, the the concept of absolute evil as evil as a uh, a thing in itself existing independently of God. Is, is impossible for Augustine. It's, it's not something that, that, that could exist. Augustine has a privative concept of evil, where evil is simply the um, uh, uh, the subtraction of the good, the negation of the good. So the idea that there could be a character who is absolutely evil, uh, you know, an unredeemably evil for Augustine, is simply intolerable. Okay, Everything ultimately is created by God, which means that everything exists in some relation to the good. So the idea that there could be a character with no relation to the good called carcass means that he simply cannot exist. So at one level, I think Augustine has absolutely no choice but to remove carcass from his political universe. And that's really the subject of the first part of the chapter. But then the second part of the chapter pursues a, an argument that I really try and develop throughout the book, which is that once this unbearable life is removed, you know, once this, this figure or figures like Cacus are said to be non-existent or in existence, what happens to them? Where do they go? Uh, in, in in Augustine's universe. and my argument is that Cacus does not does not simply you know silently um, accede or accept his non-existence. but there's a kind of return of the repressed to put it really crudely is that this thing called the unbearable life always returns. One, the moment it's been banished from the city of God, it returns to the city of God in other forms and under other names. And so I pursue this in the second part of the chapter via Augustine's, as you say, very surprising uh, uh, defense for torture. I mean, Augustine uh, gives, it's one of the the most interesting and remarkable uh, uh, philosophies of torture that, that you can find because, you know, Augustine anticipates pretty much all the arguments, all the very good arguments that today anyone would make against torture. You know, he acknowledges that torture uh, is abhorrent. He acknowledges that torture probably won't work. You know, if you torture somebody, will you get the truth? No, you'll just they'll just say anything you want you want them to say in order to to stop the pain. But even though torture is abhorrent, and even though torture is uh, unworkable, Augustine argues there are certain circumstances in which we are forced to torture. There are certain circumstances in which the sovereign, the Christian ruler, must torture. Even, he says, you know, even if we end up torturing the innocent in order to prove their innocence. Even if we end up uh, torturing an innocent man for absolutely no reason. And he says the only thing that can stop that is the grace of God. You know, we've got to pray to God that we're not just torturing the innocent. But this is something that Augustine can never exclude from his political philosophy. If you want to rule, you have to make extremely hard choices, you have to do some pretty horrible things, and the most horrible thing of all that you can do is uh, uh, torture. So what I argue in the end, or in the the conclusion of the book, is that in a paradoxical sense, this figure called Carcass, this lonely ruler of his own private kingdom, who lives according, you know, to his own to his own self interest, and and whose whose cave, whose 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 lonely lonely cave, is apparently festooned with the body parts of his victims, paradoxically ends up returning in the figure of the Christian ruler himself, uh, in Augustine's City of God, the ruler who doesn't mean to do harm. Who doesn't want to hurt anyone but nonetheless we can never exclude the possibility that he too is torturing and killing purely uh, you know for no good reason whatsoever so this this chapter in some ways uh sets up a structure that's repeated in all the following chapters of the book is unbearable life is excluded but unbearable life returns uh returns to the city returns to the state uh, in other forms and
0: under other names. And and now let us talk about uh, your chapter three, which was uh, uh, my favorite one because because I guess I'm biased, I studied literature and that's uh, Macbeth, one of the most political uh, Shakespeare's plays maybe. So it starts with, an. uh, you, you mentioned a famous article, which I hadn't heard of before, and reading your book, I guess, introduced this article to me and I went and read that article as well. How many children Lady Macbeth had? Because I never thought about the idea of Lady Macbeth having children. And Mm. so what is the significance of Macbeth's lineage to his reign? And if I'm not mistaken, it's sort of similar to that uh, idea, Esposito's ideas of anticipatory suppression of death as well. Because Macbeth kills one of his friends fearing um, his, his child might become the next king. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, this
1: is a a a very famous article by a literary uh, critic called Elsie uh delivered in the nineteen thirties, called "How Many Children Had Lady Macbeth?" and and I actually opened the chapter by having a brief discussion of this article, and I mean, what's interesting about this this article is it actually. Uh, He's not seeking to answer the question "How many children had Lady Macbeth?" He's trying to argue that this is actually a completely meaningless question. It's a nonsensical question. It's it's what philosophers would call a category mistake because it's treating uh, literary characters as if they were real people. Okay, you know, uh, um, you know, it's it's as pointless as asking what did you know what did Hamlet study at university or or, or something like that. Um, In the play itself, there's no, the play is pretty unclear or contradictory about whether Macbeth ever had any children, whether they had children and died, we don't know. But Macbeth himself, you know, is pretty clear that um, his reign is going to end with himself, you know, his real, his, his, his greatest fear in the play after he assumes the throne after he actually becomes king of Scotland by murdering Duncan, is that he is going to be succeeded uh, not by his own children, his own sons, he doesn't have any, but as you say, by the children of his friends and rivals, by Banquo's uh, uh, um, uh, issue. Okay, So Macbeth is forced you know, into this appalling dilemma where he realizes that perhaps, you know, he's done this terrible crime for nothing and that he's just going to be a footnote in history and Banquo and Banquo's uh, lineage uh, will succeed. So what does he try and do or what is his, his response to this? Well, his response is, again, a kind of early version, I think, of what Esposito calls the anticipatory suppression of birth. It's a kind of Shakespearean eugenics. Uh, if 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 you will. because as anyone who knows the play uh, will be well aware, um, you know Macbeth goes around, you know it, he goes on to this kind of bl- uh, bloody state-sponsored exercise in in birth control. He kills his friend Banquo. Why does he kill Banquo? Is it because Banquo himself is going to become king? No uh, the, the The weird sisters, the witches prophesize that Banquo will never be king. Rather, Macbeth kills Banquo so that, Macbeth, so that Banquo's lineage, his future children, his future descendants, will never become kings. And this is a gesture that gets repeated throughout um, uh, 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 the play, where Macbeth engages in this preemptive, almost virtual genocide of killing kings who have yet to be born, so that they never will be born. And in the remainder of the chapter, I return to the question of how many children had Macbeth. And I argue that even if it is a nonsensical question or a meaningless question in the context of the play, thinking about it politically and biopolitically, uh, you know, it is possible to think about things like Nazi eugenics as the as, as Macbeth's uh, lineage, as Macbeth's children, if you like, that we can draw a line. Between Nazi, between Macbeth's act of virtual killing, of preventing children from never being born because their existence is intolerable to him, to the kind of uh, Nazi suppression of birth that Esposito talks about uh, in his book.
0: And and you have the same temporal side, which is Macbeth's crime uh, killing yeah, Macbeth's, of the future. Yeah, the killing of
1: the future, the killing of time itself, the attempt to prevent time. Uh, from past or, or time from taking place, that is that is Macbeth's uh, 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 real crime, I think, in the play.
0: Um, now let's go to Thomas Hobbes' uh, famous political theories, according to many people. Uh, hmm. So in, in in Thomas Hobbes, uh, well, in in, in his, his society, the citizens offer their absolute obedience to the. Sovereign in exchange for security. But how, how is this civil subject already dead in, in Thomas Hobbes' uh, Leviathan? By submitting themselves to the will of the sovereign. And in this chapter, you introduced the idea of a religious martyr, which, which fascinated me. Can you talk about that one as well?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, again... Uh, in this chapter uh, as in the case of the Augustine chapter I focus on a moment in Hobbes's text where he says effectively denies the right of existence to a certain kind of citizen a certain kind of subject who's intolerable within his 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 worldview and in this case it's the figure of the religious martyr okay uh, Hobbes uh, ends up, through a long and tortured process, but by the time he writes his, his great magnum opus, uh, The Leviathan, arguing that effectively it's impossible to be a religious martyr in political modernity. He says that only someone who existed at the time of uh, Jesus Christ could be a Christian martyr. So today, someone who kills himself for a religious cause or, or or who dies for a religious cause could not strictly speaking be called a martyr. Why does Hobbes want to do this? Well I think he's got lots of reasons. He's got some immediate pressing political reasons. Hobbes is terrified of uh, these new uh, you know what he would see as extremist uh, uh, religious sects, Protestant religious sects who are challenging uh, the state and challenging uh, the authority of of the state. but also at a more metaphysical or ontological level, I think the existence of a subject who's willing to die for their beliefs is intolerable to Hobbes. You know, Hobbes' philosophical anthropology, his idea of the human, is that all humans want to live. You know, the basis of uh, uh, his commonwealth is that all of us, all human beings, have a natural desire uh, and a natural right to preserve our existence as far as possible. You know, that's the reason why ultimately we're willing to submit ourselves to the state, because the state promises that it will take care of us. It will help preserve our lives. And in the figure of the religious martyr, you've got someone who obviously contradicts that particular version of Or, idea of what it means to be a human being. A religious martyr is someone who clearly does not value the self, their self-preservation, the physical preservation of their own life above all else. This is why, for Hobbes, the martyr must be removed from his commonwealth. The martyr must become unbearable life. However, Again, in the second part of this chapter, just as in the case of the Cacus chapter, what, what I try and do here is show how the martyr does not stay dead or stay unbearable if you like, but returns to haunt the Commonwealth and returns to the very heart of Hobbes's political theory. because there's a really interesting moment um, later on uh, in the Leviathan, where Hobbes is talking about political political obedience. And and political authority. You know, what, 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 why do we owe obedience to the sovereign? Why, why should, should we um, obey them? And he draws a parallel between the modern political citizen and a figure called Jephthah's daughter. Okay, and Jephthah's daughter is a figure from uh, the Hebrew Bible, from, from the book of Judges. Uh, and Jephthah's daughter was, uh, uh, Jephthah was a great warrior uh, who went off to fight a, a, a battle um, against the Ammonites. And in order to win the battle, he makes a deal with God. Uh, he promises God that he will sacrifice the first thing he sees when he comes home, if he wins the battle. Jephthah wins the battle, and he comes home, and he finds his own daughter is the first thing that he sees. So he's put in this position of having to sacrifice his own daughter. And what's really interesting is that the daughter effectively tells her father, "Yes, you know, you've made this deal with God. I must die. I'm willing to die for you." And Hobbes, what's really interesting and bizarre here is that Hobbes holds up this figure of Jephthah's daughter, who is effectively a religious martyr. You know, is effectively someone who is saying, I am willing to die for the greater good of your covenant with God, your promise to God, as his example of the prototype of the citizen. The citizen must be willing to lay down their lives for the greater good of the state. So, on the one hand, Hobbes rejects the figure of the martyr, renders them unbearable, says that they have no place whatsoever in his commonwealth. But on the other hand, we find the religious martyr returning uh, to the very heart of the commonwealth in uh, the figure of Jephthah's daughter, who becomes the model for the Hobbesian citizen.
0: And and is there a resemblance to, because you talk about towards the end of that chapter, which is page 116, you talk about um, uh, this this jihadist, uh, Muhammad Sadiq Khan, uh, who it was in two thousand and five in uh, London, he he blew up himself uh, in London too. So we said that we love death before. I guess before he killed himself, so we love death as you love life. Is, is, do you see any parallel between like modern suicide bombers, jihadists or terrorists? You know who who do you simply sacrifice their lives for for for. For for a greater cause that they believe in.
1: Yes, I do. Uh, and you know, I I end each chapter of the book with a a kind of modern uh, a modern paradigm or a, a modern constellation, if you like, of 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 the kind of issues that that I've been discussing. And so I end this chapter on Hobbes and the religious martyr with a discussion of this uh, young man called Muhammad Sadiq Khan who. Um, blew himself up on a London tube train, killing himself and many other people uh, in 2005. And in a video recording that he made before uh, uh, he did this act, uh, he made made the claim, which is not his own personal claim. Uh, you know, we find it in many uh, suicide bomber testimonies, that we love death as you love life. You know, that was his his promise or threat to uh to civil society, to, to the Commonwealth. We love death just like you love life. And I draw a parallel this, between this and Hobbes' discussion of the religious martyr, because I think uh, Hobbes would have recognized a claim like this very well. Um, because, in a certain sense, you know, this is this is uh, this is exactly the challenge that the religious martyr poses to the Hobbesian Commonwealth. Hobbes effectively says the thing that we all have in common, the thing that binds us together is that we love life and we want to carry on living as long as we physically can. So what do we do when we're confronted with someone who says, no, actually, I don't love life. I love something more than my own physical existence. I love death. And in the conclusion of the chapter, uh, I try and suggest that perversely, Hobbes's answer the answer that Hobbes ends up giving to a figure like Muhammad Sadiq Khan and his and his Christian predecessors uh, is not that, yes, we do love life more than we love death. But in fact, exactly the opposite. The claim that Hobbes ends up making is that we love death even more than you. We love death. The, the, the Hobbesian citizen loves death, is willing to die, for their civil sovereign even more uh, than the religious martyr. They have already laid down their existence for their uh, civil sovereign as a price for entering society. So in this sense, Hobbes counterposes Jephthah's daughter, you know, the person who willingly gives up their life for the state, to Muhammad Siddiq Khan, who willingly gives up his life to uh, resist the state.
0: Um, let's go to French Revolution uh, and the concept of already dead. Robespierre famously said, I'm a living martyr of the Republic. So you see this uh, concept of already dead. First, it would be great if you could explain the concept, but you also see it as a continuation of that classic idea of Greek heroism, Christian martyrdom, It also finds its uh, equivalent in in more more contemporary times with with Zapatista's National Liberation Army, who also had this this, uh, motto, maybe, of already dead. Mm, mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is quite a pivotal chapter in the book for me, because... This is where i move from what you might call a passive concept of uh, unbearable life to an active and even revolutionary concept of unbearable life where unbearable life ceases to simply be uh, a um you know a a a state of you know victimhood or subjection to to in you know to which one is subjected by the state but becomes a, a subject position in its own right, which can be mobilized by the state, but also against the state. And in order to do this, I, I engage in a, a quite a long and detailed reading of uh, Maximilien Robespierre, the famous French uh, revolutionary, um, the person who... <sighs> not entirely accurately, is is deemed responsible for the terror, the the, the French terror, that phase of of the revolution. And i give a reading of his political speeches, and in in one particular concept that I think you can trace all the way through his uh, political speeches, where Robespierre argues that the ideal revolutionary is not someone who is willing to give their lives for the, the state willing to give their lives for the republic, the people, what have you, but someone who is to a certain extent already dead, who is already given their lives, who's already in this state of non-existence. And you can perhaps see a parallel here with the previous chapter where again I talk about the Habesian subject as someone who must already, always already have given uh, their life or be willing to give their life as a condition of entry into society. From the very beginning of his political speeches, right through to his very last speech in front of the National Convention, Robespierre mobilizes this idea of the already dead uh, um, in order to uh, inspire uh, his his followers. And also to prove his own sense of revolutionary virtue. Someone who is already dead is someone who is clearly devoid of self-interest. Someone who is devoid even of the the self-interest that is the desire to preserve their existence for as long as they possibly can. So it's a kind of continuation and radicalization of Greek ideas, the Socratic ideas of learning to die. Uh, of Christian martyrdom. Robespierre is, is uh, entirely immersed in the, the Christian marty- martyrological tradition. And I trace this all the way through um, uh, through a reading of the French Revolution to, to the conclusion that this position of already deadness as I've suggested is, paradoxically becomes a position of strength a position of political potency. That which is already dead cannot be killed. That which is already dead cannot be made to live. And again, in the conclusion of the chapter, I reconstellate Robespierre with some contemporary uh, uh, um, revolutionary movements, such as the Zapatistas, where this claim of the already dead, of that we have always already died for our cause, uh, again gets uh, appealed to and um, remobilized in the writings of people like Subcommandante Marcos
0: uh that reminds me of uh so i'm originally from iran myself when iran and iraq war happened i was i was a little kid but when the war ended i was about six years old i still have some memories of that not sweet memories of course but uh i do remember like after the war there were a lot of movies and there were there was a lot of literature state endorsed literature about iran and iraq war and the way it was rendered was that all these soldiers have no care for their own lives they are there selflessly to sacrifice themselves for the country and also for islam but but the concept of religion was more prominent there and especially because iran and iraq war happened right after iran two years after iran's revolution so the concept of dying for the sacred revolution was still quite fresh and when somebody died in a war they I was a kid, I didn't know back then why people are saying congratulations. They think they were on television, so they congratulated each other on, on somebody's martyrdom. But to me, it was a bit weird because somebody has died, so well, well, there's nothing uh, celebratory about it. But it's this idea of just sacrificing yourself for the for the state. You, you're already dead when you're committed to that um, ideology, which I guess has its resonance again in in, in I mean because I think it also happened in Lebanon as well uh, yep. where people blowing up I guess American embassy it happened there, I guess I'm not sure
1: that, that's right I mean uh, you know um, my my wife is Lebanese, so we spend spend a lot of time uh in Lebanon and you know this this uh you know I do know that in in Arabic culture that this concept of the living martyr. Al Shaheed al hay I think, is the Arabic translation of it. Um, you know, it, it is it is part of popular discourse. This idea that someone uh, who has either died or someone who's been you know injured in in, in some kind of mili- military operation can assume the status of of a martyr, even even some in some cases, if they physi- are still physically alive, they have still in some
0: sense martyred themselves. Um, let's go to the next chapter. I must say that was, to me, I don't know much about, I haven't read, uh, this is kind of my, uh, one of my guilt is that I haven't really uh, studied enough uh, Benjamin. So I found it a bit difficult to go through the chapter simply because I didn't have a lot of background knowledge about Benjamin. So I'm just going to uh, read parts of the chapter and ask you to explain uh, those uh, those parts. On page 173 of the book, you pose a question <coughs> which is uh, why does I'm just directly quoting from the book quote why does Benjamin insist that what must be redeemed from the past is not simply the dead the forgotten or the oppressed but rather what was never lived mm. uh, what does this mean can you uh, unpack this please
1: yeah, sure. I mean, in, in order to do that, I just need to to fill in a bit more of the context um, of of the chapter. I mean, as anyone who's read Benjamin will know. I mean, firstly, you know, works like the theological political fragment and the theses on history are, you know, infamously, notoriously complex and cryptic texts. And I'm not going to suggest for a moment that you know I have I, I have I have unlocked them. But what I try and do in this chapter is 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 pursue a uh, you know, admittedly, rather uh, kind of risky um, uh, strategy. Uh, one of the, the the oddest things about Benjamin, I think, and one of the strangest things about about his work, is that we see this claim constantly, constantly being made that, in some sense, it's possible to redeem to redeem the past. Okay, to transform or or to to bear witness to the uh, um, the events the events of the past, and Benjamin scholars have spent a hundred years trying to figure out what exactly that means. You know, what do you what do we mean by redeeming the past? How how can we exactly redeem the past? And the conclusion that uh, scholars mostly come to is that you know this could only happen symbolically. Okay, is we can't actually change the past. We can't refight wars that were lost. We can't bring back people who died to life the most that we can do is uh redeem them or pay tribute to them or or uh, do justice to them in the present by you know perhaps taking up their cause and and uh fighting a new war or a new uh, or a new revolution in their name so totally understandably uh benjamin's scholarship concludes that you know, we can't take Benjamin seriously or literally, because you can't, the one thing you can't change is the past, right? You can change the future, but you can't change the past. Now, I want to pursue the argument, which I say is admittedly rather risky argument, that there is a sense in which we might, we have to take Benjamin absolutely literally here, in which when he's talking about redeeming the past, he really means the past, okay? He's not talking about, uh, repeating the past in the future, correcting it or improving it in the future. He's talking about really changing the past. And not simply changing what happened, but uh, changing uh, what didn't happen, actualizing possibilities within the past that never occurred, that that never lived. You know, the, the, the person we were never friends with, the person we never fell in love with because we never happened to meet them. Now, the reason I come to this conclusion or I think I'm justified in pursuing this argument is that Benjamin was was familiar with a very um, obscure and eccentric debate within Christian theology around something called divine omnipotence. And this is principally associated, its most sort of uh, extreme spokesperson is a theologian called Peter Damian, Pietro uh, Damiani um, in the 11th century. And this is really an argument. It was an argument about uh, God's power. You know, does God have the power to do absolutely anything or is God's power in some way limited, you know, by by the laws of nature, by things or decisions that God has already made? And Damiani uh, is the most extreme defender of God's total omnipotence. And he argues that God has the power to do absolutely anything uh, whatsoever, including changing the past, including changing what has already happened. And he gives um, a a famous example here of what he calls the fallen woman, a woman who has lost her virginity, says if God decides, God can make it so that she never lost her virginity in the first place. Okay, so this is not a miracle. It's not it's not bringing someone back to life. It's literally making sure that they never died uh, in the first place. You know, Benjamin could ensure that Rome was never. Sorry, um, Damiani says uh, God could ensure that Rome was never founded, or that that Rome never fell, or, or 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 any or any of these things. Now, Benjamin was very well aware of this argument, and it's an argument that continues and goes back and forth in different ways. In um scholasticism in uh in kind of Thomism and nominalism uh and so on and so what I try and do in uh in this chapter is is reread his theses on the philosophy of history and particularly his very um, unusual concept of the messianic uh, redemption of history uh through this concept of divine omnipotence describing it as a kind of divine omnipotence from below rather than from above this idea that for Benjamin remembering historic you know historical materialism uh, when it remembers the past when it seeks to recreate the past it's not simply, doing it in our heads in the way that I might remember a person I knew from the past who's now died, but that this has a realist force and that it it becomes possible to change the past as past by the very act of remembering it. So the book concludes here with Benjamin uh, because here I see a kind of, um, uh, again, unbearable life becoming a positive, active uh, 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 subject position as opposed to simply uh, an abject one in a certain sense the the debate around christian omnipotence and divine omni- omnipotence has never gone away in, in a certain sense it's the metaphysics of what we call political disappearance today that um, god or whoever happens to have power has the power to change the past as as they will and and as they won't as as they want to and Benjamin, I think, counters this version of sovereignty over life and unbearable life and over the past, with a potentially more positive, recuperative messianic version of history, where it's not simply possible of a, it's not simply the act of erasing people who existed, of erasing the woman uh, who lost her virginity, or even the child that she could potentially have had, but also of making. That which never happened possible once again, by making it possible to be friends with the person we never met, to fall in love with the person we never got the opportunity to fall in love with. So I see Benjamin's uh, messianic idea of history as a kind of contrapuntal, positive form of unbearable life uh, in which we can make the disappeared reappear.
0: Um, I, I know that I've taken a lot more your time than I originally asked for, but I do like to uh, touch upon a quote, uh, in the conclusion of the book, which I guess when I read that there was this idea that the victims of political erasure, they're, they're, they're not, they don't disappear completely. They're, I'll just read that quote. It's sure. on page 194. In being forced to negate its victims again and again, even as it insists they never were, what I have called a nihilo power ironically also ends up conferring upon those victims a certain spectral resist- resistant power or immunity. They live on in a state outside life and death. This to me has this more positive, let's say, it, give, it confers upon them an agency. So the victims sure. don't completely disappear. Is that the right yes. interpretation of this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, as I've said throughout the book, you know, unbearable life, rendering life unbearable, saying life never existed, is never the end of the story for me. It's really the beginning, and and you know, hopefully, I've been able to explain how in each case, when someone is 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 uh, consigned to this position of unbearable life, they don't simply stay there. They come back. Uh, they return in in the repressed returns in one way or another, and I think it's worth mentioning that you know there's a there's a kind of silent irony that attends every discussion of disappearance from damnatio memoriae up to enforced disappearance in the present, which is if it worked we wouldn't know it exist we wouldn't know about it. You know, if 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 damnatio memori worked, if you really could erase somebody from memory, we wouldn't even know that damnatio memori existed. If enforced disappearance really worked, you know, the act of dis- disappearing people itself would have disappeared. But in fact, you know, we know about this thing. We know about these strategies. So at some level, these strategies don't work. Why don't they work? Well. Again, there are lots of good political, empirical reasons why they don't work. Okay, you know, and uh, you know, I want to just signal there. You know, there is something called the International Coalition Against Enforced Disappearance, which has a fabulous website, which spends its time uh, painstakingly, painstakingly resisting this act of disappearance and making the disappeared reappear, constantly insisting that yes, these people are here they were here they are being detained in such and such a place okay however the the gesture that i'm trying to make is a more uh, let's call it a more dialectical or uh conceptual one which is that there's a certain kind of um self-contradiction almost in the very act of saying they do not exist they never were they never existed because you know we only have to, to to say they never existed they never were you know even that perhaps confers a minimal identity upon uh, the thing that we are repressing the thing that we are denying and i call it a certain kind of spectral resistant power or or immunity and where i end the book and where i you know where i really want to 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 um to conclude is that what what we can do to resist unbearable life is not is not simply to insist that yes we do exist and the people who have been erased did exist do exist should and must be remembered but that the very state of of being rendered unbearable of being placed in this area this zone of exception of indifference outside life and death can become a new political position of political agency, and in the conclusion to the book, I mention you know a few political movements uh, in recent years which have, in a sense, taken on this cloak of invisibility as a as a a form of new new political power, as a new political subject position. Um, you know, thinking of movements like Anonymous, you know, the internet kind of hacktivist organization would would be something, where effectively. This this state of being unbearable, of being invisible, of being unrecognized and unrecognizable, uh, becomes a new resistant subject position.
0: Uh, there was a great conclusion to that uh, to this talk, and I just want to mention a little anecdote. In Iran, there are uh, hacktivists, anonymous groups, and it was I guess three or four months ago, some of them hacked. Even prison videos in iran the security cameras and it was it's the most notorious prison in iran and they released the videos so it was and and one of the guards was just looking at because it it was showing the surveillance room in the in the prison and suddenly everything went black and there were logos of that uh that group anonymous but it was an iranian group anyway all appeared on the monitor and the, the the prison guards or the security guards who were looking at the security cameras, they were all puzzled. They were looking at the camera, didn't know what was happening. So it was the first time they released some of the videos, how some of the prisoners were being beaten up, which was, which were really sad videos anyhow. But it was a moment that some of these prisoners, people don't, you didn't even know they were there, but they came back. I mean, the videos brought them back uh, on, 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 uh, like i said these videos went viral so and they start a lot of people started talking again about political prisoners in 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 evan prison uh which was kind of uh when i when i was reading the conclusion i was reminded of that as well that's really thank you very much thank you very much for your time dr arthur bradley thank thank you very much it's been my pleasure